So uh, welcome. Welcome to the show. If I sound a little discombobulated, we really have had sort of Star Trek type technical problems here at the station today with the the studio in particular crashing a bunch of times and people when I say we I should say I really mean Betsy Kaplan our senior producer Kion Wolf our technical producer Gene Amatruda and TJ our uh, technical guys I don't so much mean me I was actually home making like a really good tuna fish sandwich <laughs> while they were running around with fire extinguishers trying to make the studio stabilize. Anyway, um, but I, I, we, we feel confident. And, you know, I mean, if our confidence is misplaced, that will become part of our saga. So a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about political debates and who gets to be on stage, particularly here in Connecticut, where that question has become newly fraught. And uh, near the end of the show, I, I have to do a couple of uh, farewells to people who left this wor- uh, earth over the weekend. Uh, wonderful uh, good people, and we'll try to take your phone calls about all the other stuff that has come up so far. So, But right now, we're going to begin with the big story of the weekend. To my way of thinking, the second biggest story of the weekend, because last night's Aaron Rodgers comeback was the biggest story for me. But I realize the rest of the world is far more transfixed by what happened at the U.S. Open. Uh, joining us to talk about this uh, is uh, one of our favorites, Josh Levine, a writer and editorial director uh, at Slate.com and host of Slate's terrific sports ca- cast, Hang Up and Listen, which will be going up, if it hasn't already, at some point today. And you can hear uh, them also talk about uh, this very topic, the Serena Williams U.S. Open. Uh, so, uh, Shana Tova, uh, Josh, we already have like a big sports story here in <laughs> 5779, one of the big stories of, yes. uh, of the 5779 sports season, uh, and that is uh, what happened at the U.S. Open. So I, I don't know if you, I mean, people see things differently. Tell me, tell me just generally speaking, in a nutshell, how we, you would describe this to somebody who hadn't been through this. I would ask them to sit down and say, it's going to be a long conversation. <laughs> We're going to, it's going to take an hour, maybe two, and we'll be here for a while and, and we'll talk about sports and society and a lot of uh, bigger issues because the thing that was totally fascinating about this was that it so quickly transcended sports, not even while it was still ongoing, it had transcended sports. Um, and I can get to that in a second, but what happened was that Serena Williams was called for, um, a violation during her U S open final against Naomi Osaka. And that violation was that the chair umpire had perceived that she was receiving illegal coaching from the stands, um, that her coach was giving her hand signals and that is not allowed and professional tennis at the Grand Slams. Um, and so he gave her a warning and Serena Williams um, received this as if it was an accusation of cheating. And she um, responded as as you would if you were accused very publicly of being a cheater. Um, and it became very raw and very personal and escalated. Actually, uh, as- Josh, Josh, I'm just going to interrupt and say, I think we can hear uh, in this clip what that sounded like. Yeah. Carlos Ramos in the chair. We don't have any code, and I know you don't know that, and I understand why you may have thought I, that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know. There's a coaching violation. I guess it was a thumbs up, and Serena's setting him straight. That, that is not coaching. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose, she says. All right, Josh, continue. Yeah, and I don't know what other um, clips you guys have queued up, but it just got very raw and very personal, especially after... Serena smashed her racket, and that was a second violation, and the penalty for a second code violation in tennis is a point penalty, and she um, accused the chair umpire of stealing 
a point from her, and then things got uh, even more intense. Yeah, we can actually uh, give you some of that intensity right here. Serena was watching her coach give her a hand signal. Wow. Correct. Oh my goodness, this is and just, we'll take that one down and we'll just jump to the third clip. I think this is the, the part that has got the, most of the conversation. Uh, I think the third clip is the one that has the thief line in it. Oh, that was it. Okay. So uh, potted it down by mistake. All right. So Josh Levine, uh, most of the world, I guess, doesn't know most of this story. But, I mean, it, it ends with this chair umpire uh, deducting uh, a game uh, from, uh, from, from this match and Serena Williams did not take it well, um, as any competitive athlete probably would not take it well. I mean, first question that I have for you, though, is do you have sort of a sense of what was going to happen? I mean, we haven't even mentioned the name, I don't think, of the person who actually won the, the U.S. Open, which is very much a, a problem with this whole narrative, right? Yeah, Naomi Osaka was the winner, a 20-year-old woman who has talked um, continually about how Serena Williams is her hero and how she dreamed of playing Serena Williams and the U.S. Open final and appeared stricken throughout this whole episode. We should say that the way that Osaka was able to perform during this match, especially after the situation um, kind of got to be so um, intense and, and bizarre, was extremely admirable, especially given that it was her first Grand Slam final and that she was presumably nervous. But yeah, she was just kind of standing on the other side of the court while this was happening um, and just kind of doing her thing. I mean, I, I guess one question that I had was, um, you know, Serena Williams is obviously a superlative athlete and a highly competitive person uh, facing a very, very talented younger opponent. Uh, I, I wondered if she, I mean, any athlete who feels a game slipping away you know, any great pitcher who feels a game for whatever reason slipping away immediately concludes that he's being squeezed by the umpire. Um, and, and I'm wondering whether any of that factored in. In other words, as Serena began to realize she was maybe in a little bit of trouble, did that kind of ratchet up some of her uh, feeling of being being victimized? I think that's certainly true. I think that I was asking um, folks on Twitter yesterday, what are some examples of athletes in any sport getting into a huge argument with the referees while they're winning? And people had a really hard time coming up with an example. So it's not anything particular to Serena Williams. It's just human nature um, that you're going to feel more vulnerable, more wronged. Um, and like the umpire, the referee is out to get you when you're losing. And we should say that the coaching accusation, the warning came after she had already lost the first set and Osaka was looking incredibly tough to beat. And then the racket break came when Serena was ahead in the second set, but had just lost her serve and had kind of lost her lead and was frustrated about that. So kind of in moments when the match seemed to be getting away from her was when um, the argument also seemed to escalate, and that cannot have been a coincidence. Right. I'm actually having flashbacks. I can't place this in, in date or time or anything like that, but uh, I do remember a Roger Clemens start where he got it into, into it 
he couldn't locate his pitches and he was getting into it with the umpire and the two things begin to kind of feed on themselves and kind of begin to define his performance and I'm pretty sure it was in a critical playoff game or something you see athletes do that and that seemed to be happening here and you I, first of all I just want to say we thought your piece about this was terrific the piece that you wrote is the best thing I've read about it and one thing that you tried to do is to not pin the tail on one donkey or the other but sort of spread the blame out a little bit yeah i think that the umpire certainly instigated this um for a little background on carlos ramos he's known um he referees men's and women's matches for being a stickler for the rules different referees as you know across different sports have different styles and he is someone who whether it's novak djokovic andy murray rafael nadal is known for calling things that other referees might not call because he just is more of a stickler for whatever reason. And so he had previously in this tournament called Novak Djokovic, um, your men's champion at the U.S. Open, as well as another player, Marco Cecchinato, for receiving illegal coaching. So Serena was not being singled out in that regard. And yet, I don't think he should have called that violation on anyone mm-hmm. because as Serena's coach said afterwards, and I think it's true, that every coach coaches from the stands. And this is an example of this being a really bad rule that is not enforced very well. And so what happens in life when you have really bad rules that are are unclear is then the person in charge of enforcing rules has an incredible amount of power, right? Where they can just say, oh, well, that's a violation. I Obviously, I should, I can call that on you because it's within the rules. But if it's generally not called, then there might be an expectation from the player. And so I think they need to really figure that out and tennis. And so I think that he instigated it. And then Serena Williams, you know, she might have brushed it off. She might have said other players have been called for this and I'm just going to like keep going on my way. But she took it very personally for reasons that I can understand that maybe we can get into. But um, I think she certainly played a part in where it ended up. It's not all on the umpire. Right. I think, you know, what you have in these situations is uh, situations can turn into kind of a muddle of a lot of things that are true. You know, has Serena Williams been subjected to double standards at various times in her career? Yeah, I think that's sort of without question. Are there are there double standards within our society, not just tennis, but just generally speaking, for expressions of rage and anger? You know, are men treated differently when they do things like this in women? I think definitely true. Those are all definitely true. But in terms of this guy and then this athlete, it might have just been two people having a really bad day with each other, particularly as he, as you say, tried to enforce a rule that probably shouldn't exist, but which he, for whatever reason, has decided generally right. to take seriously. Yeah, I think this could be an example of like two trains that were just going to collide with each other. Just when you have somebody who's a stickler like this, when you have an athlete in an incredibly high stress situation, um, those are probably not the best forces to be colliding. And at the end with the game penalty, I think a lot of people said very fairly that, you know, we, we, for whatever reason, I don't know if what the microphone situation was, but just as an audience member watching on television, we had more access to what Serena was saying than what Carlos Ramos was saying. So I can't tell you with certain certainty that he didn't warn her, but it seemed like it kind of came out of the blue that when she called him a thief, she didn't use any expletives, um, she did kind of impugn his integrity a little bit by calling him a thief, but she didn't. It, it didn't seem like he warned her, and it seemed like in that moment in a Grand Slam final, where giving Osaka a game was essentially giving her the match, 
it seemed like he, um, Carlos Ramos, really escalated the situation there and did not try to diffuse it and say, all right, like this is getting a little bit personal. Let's like step back here. And like, if you go over the line again, then I'm going to, then that would be the third violation. It just didn't seem like he um, tried to de-escalate the situation in that moment when it was so fraught. You know, one one thing that I've been thinking about sort of philosophically about, uh, and this is probably to supercharge the situation and bring it up, but I, I find myself wondering whether expletives are always the worst thing that you can be called, you know, that like, you know, over the course of your life, you get called an a-hole and a D-bag and stuff so much, it almost begins to <laughs> Maybe lose. Maybe you do. I, yeah, don't. I do all the time. Yes, I'm quite used to it. But if somebody called me unattractive inside, which is something that Serena did say to a different chair umpire, I might, particularly if I felt unattractive inside... <laughs> <laughs> that might be more some of Serena's uh, Serena has kind of an interesting way, as you say, of making things rather personal. Um, well, I know. think a way to pivot off that that's yeah. really interesting is just other players did not react to the coaching violation in the way that Serena did. And as as you might react to somebody calling you ugly inside, if that was a trigger for you, mm-hmm. like for whatever reason. And I, I think I actually understand the reason she felt like impugning her honor and integrity and character in such a way that a coaching illegal coaching accusation can do, it hit her very personally because she feels like she's somebody who is attacked. Her integrity is attacked and she is not um, treated with the respect that she deserves in a lot of different cases. And so I feel like I can understand that and I can understand why she might feel that way, even if another player might not feel that way. I also just wanted to quickly go back to a point you made about how we can kind of stipulate about how she's face sexism and racism throughout her career. And I think beyond stipulating it, I think we should say that she has faced more sexism and racism um, in her sport than maybe, I don't know about, I don't know about saying this, but she has just faced an enormous amount. Like, I don't think we can just kind of glide past Mm -hmm. that point as a pioneer in the sport, as somebody who paved the way for a player like Naomi Osaka to be in the uh, the U.S. Open final against her, um, she is somebody who has faced so 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 much her and her sister, and her career. And so we have to take that into account that it's an accumulation of decades of um, you know stuff that she's received and that she's heard. That this can't this is not possibly an isolated moment for her, even if um, you know viewers we see it that way. Right. And I think, I mean, the racism, I think we can analogize pretty easily among sports. But one of the things that's uniquely interesting about tennis is it's one of the few places in pro sports where you can see differences in how men and women are treated. For the most part, if you think about most other pro sports, men and women, they kind of aren't subjected to the same kinds of stresses and, and identical situations. I don't know. Like, yeah, it's like I, a controlled experiment in that way. Yeah. So, so I mean, there's a way in which, at least the sexism part of it, this is one of the few opportunities for you to ask the question, are women treated differently by officials? Well, two things here. The thing that was so stark and telling about this is that Serena brought up sexism in the moment on the court. Like, it's usually something where if there's like a bigger picture issue that comes up on the field of play, then an athlete will talk about it in a press conference after the game, or, you know, we'll talk about it on the radio the next day. She was having the bigger conversation as it was happening, which was really, really, I think unique. And what kind of made this into an instant conversation 
for everyone to have. But also just a little bit of context and background is like earlier in the tournament, this woman, a French player, Alizé Cornet, was given a code violation for changing her you know, shirt. She had a sports bra and she had her shirt on backwards. She took it off and put it back on. And she was given a violation for it, which is just insane. Mm. It's like men are changing their shirts on the court all the time. And the U.S. Open, you know, they conceded that this was a mistake. But like, you know, Serena, the the guy who runs the French Open earlier, like not that long ago, said Serena Williams can't wear her cat suit anymore, which was, you know, something that Nike designed for in part because it looked cool but in part because she had these circulation circulation issues after her pregnancy. And they're saying we can't have this and you can't wear it, which is also insane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is like the, that's like the recent kind of, this is all the stuff that's like swirling around this in terms of gender beyond just like the, the bigger picture, picture issues with women in sports. Yeah, and I think maybe that's one of the reasons I just, uh, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, because I know you've got stuff to do, you said at the beginning, this moved out beyond sports. I don't know if you feel as though you've lined that out well enough at this point, but there was a way even, yeah, if you were watching Twitter while it was happening, where you suddenly realized that in a way that you are typically not being informed, well, I am not typically being informed on my Twitter feed about developments in tennis, uh, something very different was unfolding. Yeah, and I think everyone um, can relate what happened to their own lives, which I think is always key as far as making a conversation broader. If you're not a tennis fan or even if you aren't watching the match, you can just watch a clip or hear about what happened. Um, and I think especially for, you know, women and people of color feeling like a visceral feeling of, um, you know, that, that this was, was something that needed to be talked about and needed to be addressed in a more global sense, I think was, was really key. Um, okay, we're going to wrap it up there, although I'll take phone calls about this later. I, I would, I, you know, I don't know much about tennis. I do know a lot about people named McEnroe. So I'll just point out for historical context that I believe in 1983, John McEnroe was fined for calling Tomas Smith a communist bastard. And I think today you could probably get confirmed as Undersecretary of State for having called someone a communist bastard. So times are changing. Mores are changing. Uh, we just have to learn to change with them. Josh Levine, thank you so much for doing this. And I encourage everyone to listen later to today when uh, Josh's Slate Sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, goes up on the podcast thing that things go up on. Uh, didn't I <laughs> Thank you, sir. All Very right, well thanks. said. Thank okay. you. Appreciate it. <laughs> thanks, Josh. We'll come back with more beautifully worded sentiments by me after this. Let's go down to the tennis court and talk it up like All right. Well, uh, let's uh, turn to a very different theater of dispute and talk about a very different kind of dispute. Uh, That dispute has to do with who gets to be at political debates, very specifically here uh, in this 2018 or today, I should say, 5779 political campaign cycle. Uh, we are looking at multiple, what are called by statute in Connecticut, minor party candidates. Uh, they would like to be on the debate stage uh, along with Mr. Lamont and Mr. Stefanowski uh, and uh, de- debate by debate. This gets decided sometimes a little bit idiosyncratically uh, or based on rules that we never knew existed. Joining us, well, one of the people who's uh, in charge of figuring all this out, Chris Keating, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Hartford Current. Uh, Chris, welcome to our Monday conversation. Good to good to hear from you. How are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Um, so we've just been through one debate where it wasn't really all that contentious. That was last Wednesday's debate where um, 
the, the problem was that Bob Stefanowski, the Republican nominee who was invited, decided uh, that he wasn't going to go to it. So we had Ned Lamont and Oz Griebel, a qualifying uh, minor party candidate, qualifying by petition minor party candidate uh, on stage. Uh, the field is getting a little bit more complicated. We've got two more people having qualified for ballot lines by signature. So potentially, yes, a field of five people. But that doesn't mean that five people are going to be on stage at all these debates. Chris, what do we know about this? Right. Uh, What happens is uh, the debate organizers have a lot of power in this whole thing. And uh, generally you have debate organizers and then you generally have media partners. So sometimes you have three or four hosts on these things and, and, and the media plays a big role. But uh, in this next debate on Wednesday, uh, Channel 8 uh, is talking about a 10% threshold. So unless that changes, Oz Griebel will not be in the debate, and neither will the other two petitioning candidates that you talked about, uh, Libertarian Rod Hanscom and uh, Mark Stewart Greenstein of the Amigo Party. Uh, your listeners might not know them as well, but uh, they are on the ballot. Our listeners do know Mark because he's been on the show and he's going to be uh, on the show in just a few minutes uh, after you and I complete our conversation. Um, So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in a way you have to sort of back up and think, well, what's the purpose of debates? And it may be that we just don't have a real consensus about this. I I think back to a debate that you and I both uh, remember well. It was uh, during a U.S. Senate campaign uh, and Chris Murphy was on stage with Susan Bicewitz and Lee Whitnam and Matthew Oakes and I think William Tom. You know, and things started to get a little crazy, thanks mainly to Lee Whitnam calling Chris Murphy a whore and then uh, dispensing insults and epithets to the other people on stage. Um, And and Murphy had this kind of look on his face and maybe he said something like, I I really actually wanted everybody, you know, to be uh, part of this debate. I'm starting to wonder if that was such a great decision. But I mean, you know, organizers, I guess they, they all have their different goals. And 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 as you say, I mean, there's I guess there's nothing that can be done other than to let them figure out what what the bar is that people have to clear. Yeah, they they can cut it off. Oz Griebel uh, mentions that Channel Eight is no owned by a company called NextStar, which is in Texas, and the decisions, according to him, are being made in Texas, not in New Haven at Channel Eight. So these are not even local decisions, and this particular one that we're talking about. I mean, people have been excluded for years, um, and there usually are the minor party uh, people. And, and uh, it's not that it's not for reasons of substance. It's not that Oz Griebel couldn't give you an intelligent argument. It's based strictly on uh, issues, at least in this case, you're not at 10 percent in the polls. Um, Oz Griebel can argue with the best of them on all kinds of issues. Uh, that's that's not the issue. But uh, both on the national and the state level, they've been they've been excluding people for years. I mean, uh, they didn't exclude them, but all the way back, one of the most famous debates of all time was uh, Admiral James Stockdale, which I'm sure you remember. Who am uh, I, and why am I here? Yes, yes, with Roy, with Ross Perot back in the day. So, um, and, and versus uh, more recently, uh, your listeners will remember, you know, Trump being on stage in the middle and literally like 15, 16, 17 Republicans up on the stage. That was the far extreme in those primaries. Uh, that, that would be uh, the extreme and not the normal. 
So you've got these other candidates who've collected 7,500 signatures, which is not that easy to do. Uh, I mean, uh, we know people who have been unable to do that. Jonathan Pelto comes to mind. So, um, I mean, I, I don't know. There's a case to be made. Like, if they're on the ballot, they should be allowed to debate. Do uh, We know that Osgrey Abel was able to debate last Wednesday, but Stefanowski wasn't there. We know that in the Channel 8 one, unless they change their position, Osgrey Abel and the other two are not going to be there. Do you, do you know enough about about the rules of all the debates that are set up this year to know whether Oz has any chance of getting back up on stage or Mark or Rod Hanscom? It's, it's not looking good for Oz. I talked to CCM, uh, which is uh, running a debate at Foxwoods uh, way around Halloween, October 30th area. And they basically said also, if he doesn't have the 10 percent, he's basically not in. Uh, that right now at the moment, it's just Lamont and Stefanowski. So in general, it doesn't look good for Oz. He has not been, um, and, and the other two uh, minor party candidates, obviously, uh, he has not been told officially 100% you're definitely out, uh, but it is absolutely not looking good for him. All right, Chris. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I would imagine that this won't be the last time there's a conversation about this. In fact, if I were these uh, three other candidates, I would at least be thinking about uh, setting up my own debate with maybe just three of us or whatever. Anyway, uh, joining us right now is one of these three candidates. We don't have to be hypothetical about it anymore. Uh, Mark Stewart Greenstein of the Amigo Constitution Party uh, joins us right now, uh, not for the first time on this show. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me, and thanks for being really on the forefront of opening up at least conversation, if not debates. That's a really good deed. So give me your take on this. You qualified for ballot access. I would imagine that was not all that easy. Um, What's your reaction to the idea that you might not be allowed at any of the debates left to come? Let your listeners react. Between Oz, among Oz, Rod, and I, we collected over 30,000 signatures. Bob Stefanowski got 42,000 votes, okay? Collectively, the three of us aren't that far behind. And that's with people who willingly said, I'm not part of a party, but I want to see your party or I want to see you included. That's pretty hefty. And these debate organizers are basing it on polls. 70% of the people they're polling are already Republican or Democrat. So, of course, they're going to say, my one guy is Ned or my one guy is Bob. And that then takes out everybody else. If their polls were what three or four people do you think deserve to be in the debate? Then it's a different ball game, and they serve everybody better by hearing more than just two two opinions. I mean, in a way, uh, first of all, I agree about this, and I think think it's a self feeding cycle. Uh, you guys don't have enough of a profile to, to score ten percent in polls. We should first of all say polls are a snapshot of a moment. Polls don't. No poll ever proves anything. A poll is a kind of a snapshot of opinion, often weighted, statistically weighted opinion uh, at a given moment. It's, it's a bad index. It's a bad choice of a qualifying mechanism. Uh, and you guys are in kind of this vicious cycle where, you know, if your profile isn't stark enough so that you can uh, get 10 percent in the polls, you can't be in the debate, which means nobody uh, people are less likely to find out about you, which means you're less likely to be in future debates. If I were you, I would be, I would be as annoyed as you sound like you are. I'm mildly annoyed, but I'm an optimist. I really think truth will come out, and that thanks to people being resourceful and not relying only on Channel 8's duopoly of candidates, they'll find us. 
Right. Um, it'd be nice if it happened sooner rather than later. Um, I don't understand why there's a need for two. You can fit three more chairs on the stage. Right. <laughs> so these blinders that some debate people have on, some of them are blinders, and some of them just want to rail the system into a Democrat or Republican. For them, I have hate. For everybody else, I just say be open-minded that you don't have quirky people here. The five of us are pretty serious. Oz would make a very good governor. Rod would make a very good governor. I'd make a great governor. You don't have kookiness that you need to exclude. Put up three more chairs. Let people hear the rest of us. Right. You know, you mentioned WTNH's duopoly. I didn't think we were going to drag Mark Davis's duop singing into this. But uh, <laughs> if you insist on doing that, uh, sure. Well, let me ask you this. Let's, let's say you guys are stonewalled. Um, would it make some sense for the three of you to have a debate, uh, for the three of you at least? To... Well, they exist already. Yeah. You might get an invitation to be a moderator. I'd be I, a moderator. I know you're on the list. I'm a busy guy, but I would be okay. a moderator. I don't think I would want to moderate a debate, you know, that had like all the all five of you. But for the three of you, I would do that. Well, why not have all five? I mean, the other guys are invited. Yeah. And in I believe it's October 4th is the first of these at Woodlands High School. So that's going to be Oz, Rod, me, if Ned and Susan, because they're inviting the lieutenant governors as well, if they both don't show, there will be empty seats. Okay? Um, yeah. Show everybody how the Democrat mainstream can't put one candidate in front of a bunch of students and media to talk with the rest of us. Well, uh, first of all, I, I encourage you to do that. If I'm free for one of these and you choose me as your moderator, I don't know who you could get who would be better than me for that particular thing. But if you choose me and I could do it, I'll do it. But but yeah, I I, I just want to just weigh in. I mean, I usually don't uh, I don't often express opinions like this one, but I think you guys are getting screwed. And I think if you go and get 7,500 signatures, end of story. You're on the ballot. Why shouldn't you be at the debate? Those debates were set up to let the more credible people then get extra time. So that's your measurement mechanism. Let the people who are witnessing the debate have surveys afterwards. The ones who come in first and second on the next debate get more time. The ones who aren't very compelling, they get less time. They're still invited, but the audience has decided that you guys don't deserve as much speaking time as these other ones. Very fair. It does, it does sound fair. Fair. Well, Mark Stewart, uh, thank you uh, so much for joining us from the Amigo Constitution Party. If he people will, want to hear it, it's yeah. StuartForLiberty.com. StuartForLiberty.com. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, he'll be on your ballot wherever it is that you're voting. He may not be on your debate stage, depending on where you live. All right. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. I'm going to take your phone calls if you want to talk about either Serena Williams or who should be invited to debates or, I don't know, something else. 860-275-7266. I have two uh, goodbyes I need to say and uh, also a congratulations. I'm getting some illegal coaching signals right now from Betsy Kaplan. Does that does that mean you want me to move away from the mic, or do you do you want me to move closer and bend my head way to the right, and then just open one corner of my mouth? Oh, you were just drinking a Slurpee. Betsy Kaplan produced this show today with me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is unattractive inside, but so are most fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jimmy Connors. 
On tomorrow's show, revisit our conversation about smartphone addiction. And now, back to Colin. I really do think that that is an interesting question. I mean, not for today necessarily, but it was one of the things that I wound up talking, uh, thinking about to myself over the weekend. Because I went back and I reviewed all the things that John McEnroe had been penalized for over the years. And often it did involve bad words, expletives. Um, and, and I think there's, I mean, I think, you know, there has to be some kind of hierarchy of offense in the enforcement of rules of decorum and stuff like that. So uh, there has to be something that's verbal abuse and something that's not verbal abuse or something that's milder verbal abuse. And I suppose expletives is a pretty easy place to go. But when I think about it, when I think of the times that I've been really kind of verbally wounded in my life, it really wasn't necessary. It wasn't even particularly helpful to use expletives. It was really, you know, there's a, a um, an old Peanuts cartoon where Lucy uh, is yelling at an unseen Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, you blockhead. And Linus approaches her and says, you really shouldn't say that. And she says, why not? And he says, because it might offend him. And she says, what do you mean? And he says, he might really be a blockhead. And there's a lot of truth in that, that whatever your deepest fear about yourself is, that's the most wounding insult, not like the worst word somebody can call you. <laughs> I've been called so many of those worst words. It's just like that's like, that's like a day. It's a day. It's just been a day. Somebody called me an a-hole. Um, you know, but somebody who ha- and I've had this experience of people getting at what my worst grievances with myself are. That's a much more wounding process. Anyway, uh, I have a couple of I, we'd love to hear from you about either the U.S. Open controversy or the question of who should get to be in political debates. Or if you could combine the two into one call so that they seamlessly and symbiotically kind of fed off one another, we'd give you some kind of prize. 860-275-7266. Yes, you would be eligible for a uh, something that we refer to as some kind of prize, <laughs> which doesn't commit us to very much, I realize. Uh, but if you'd like to be eligible for that, then you have to, but you have to do it. It has to be like you can't see the seams on it. You know, it's all there together uh, in one statement. And then you will be receiving some kind of prize. Um, so meanwhile, um, I first of all want to salute everybody who worked on this show today because really I'm laughing mainly because it didn't really inconvenience <laughs> me the, in the tiniest bit. Although at one point I was getting ready to maybe go to New Haven because these Hartford studios literally were in some kind of technical moment of, of mass failure. Um, so I suppose it could have inconvenienced me, but ultimately it didn't. And Gina Matruda, who works so, so hard here, uh, has been working very, very hard for I think the last 24 hours trying to figure out what's going wrong, what's happening here on the Starship, Enter- Starship Enterprise, and also assisted by TJ and Kion and Betsy and people like that. So um, thanks to all of you. We're on the air right now. Uh, thanks to you and no thanks to me. Um, okay, so a um, couple of sad things. Well, and by the way, if you want to call in about other stuff while I'm talking, get yourself on the board here. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Yes, I'm, I'm told that Gene Amatruda was up all night uh, working on this, like literally up all night working on this. But anyway, he has saved us, uh, and I'm just sitting here reaping the benefits of it. So um, I should feel more guilty somehow, but I, I don't. Um, so um, I got the word uh, of two old friends' deaths 
I don't know, it was like they were an hour and a half apart on Saturday morning. Now, in fact, one of them had died, I think, in his sleep Thursday night. But let's talk. Let's start with Ben Duvall. Ben Duvall was a guy, uh, he was, you probably read about him. I hope maybe read about him by now. We'll also be talking about him, I should say, on the wheelhouse on Wednesday. Mr. Dan Kosky is away, so I will be hosting the wheelhouse. Ben Duvall was a participant in the wheelhouse at times uh, in his uh, life and career. Uh, I first met him, I believe, there came there came a period, I guess, in the 90s when uh, former governor and Senator Lowell Weicker would come to my old studio uh, at WTIC for long on-air conversations with me. And he was almost always accompanied by both Tom Dutchick, who now runs CT, CT Capital Report, and Ben Duvall. And I think that's when I met Ben sometime in the 90s. And Ben was um, a Republican. Uh, Republicans uh, take many forms. Uh, he, at times felt uh, deeply out of communion with certain aspects uh, of his own party, but um, tended to stay the course. Uh, he was the McCain chairman, I believe, in Connecticut in 2000. I was with him at the convention in Philadelphia when he and the other delegates arrived there and were told essentially, eventually by McCain, that they were, although Connecticut had uh, had voted for McCain in the primary, um, that they were released from their, that requirement and they wanted unanimity and they wanted them not to bring their signs in and stuff like that. And I was, I was standing next to Ben watching him be like really unhappy about that. He was a diehard McCain fan, knew McCain personally. Um, and in general, I mean, became such a, a, a voice uh, of uh, respect for both sides and of uh, a certain kind of genteel centrism that – um, you know, a lot of times here at the station, we seek out Republican voices just because we want to make sure that we're representing, when possible, the conservative side of an argument. Um, and Ben was so bipartisan and so such a gentleman and such a guy who made a point of seeing both sides and seeing the other person's position that he really actually ultimately wasn't that effective a, cho a choice to do that. He was, you know, I mean, if you really want to hear somebody uh, with an in inflexible position, uh, that wouldn't have been Ben. Ben was much more interested in seeking consensus. Um, and anyway, he was uh, riding in the Smilo a cancer ride, the bike ride, which he had trained for for a long time. And his heart gave out and and they were not able to to save him. And he was just a wonderful guy. And he added so much to the political discourse uh, of this state. And he will be deeply, deeply missed. He already is deeply, deeply missed. Ben Duvall. Um I'm just doing this off the cuff, and I hope I'm not leaving important things out. Well, at the same time, and from a widely different part of life in general and my life, I got the news that a man named David McBride uh, had died. David McBride was a composer uh, and also on the composition faculty uh, at the Hart School uh, here in Hartford, the very distinguished uh, music College here in Hartford. Um, and uh, David McBride, um, who died in his sleep, as far as I know anyway, uh, was uh, a, a composer of what you would probably call new music, maybe some of the more adventurous uh, end of, of the, what falls you know, under that wide, unspecific umbrella of classical music or orchestral music or, or whatever. Uh, and years ago, he had composed uh, a piece that uh, that included was was for orchestra and spoken word. He asked me if I would do the spoken word part of it. Uh, it was uh, Wilfred Owen's Dolce et Decorum Est, uh, which was part of this, um, which is a World War One poem. It was part of this kind of piece. Uh, uh, orchestral um, uh, composition of David's. Anyway, a d sweet, 
thoughtful, interesting, um, for the most part kind of unassuming guy, but a very, very interesting composer. And I'd had such a profound experience doing this that um, that every time I would bump into David, which was a lot because we would go to some of the same music stuff like the Garmin A-series, I would say, write something else, write something else. <laughs> I have, I can't play any instruments, so you're going to have to write something with spoken word in it, but I want to do another piece like that because it was really such a great experience. And so finally he did, or he, and, and we are scheduled, when I say we now, uh, it's it, it's the Avery Ensemble and I are scheduled in November to present a piece for piano quartet and spoken word that David had written. I will be honest with you and say at the moment, because this was a very sudden and unexpected thing, we're not 100% sure we know where all the parts of this composition are, but we're very committed to doing it in his memory uh, and uh, in his honor. And so we're going to work hard with uh, his family to see if we can make sure we can find this stuff. I should say he also has this completely amazing family that includes these two kids. They're not kids anymore. Uh, one of whom is a distinguished filmmaker and jazz pianist, I believe. And then the other one is a uh, prodigious jazz drummer. Um, so anyway, I mean, I don't know, you lose people, right? Uh, it was hard to lose both of them, though, Ben Duvall and David McBride. And maybe a, a commonality would be their essential sweetness. You know, they were both very um, they were lovely men, you know, and they were men who didn't feel the need to bigfoot you or anything like that. They got through life more on 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 humanity. Um, so we'll miss both of them. And then we got a bunch of phone calls here. I just want to say one last thing. Uh, it is uh, the kind of thing that probably gets overlooked a little bit on public radio. Uh, and also, I realize it's the, not everybody's cup of tea. Uh, but uh, and I hope I'm saying her name right. I have now heard her name pronounced several different ways. But I'll, I'm going to just try Bridget Oy, uh, who was the Miss Connecticut uh, in this year's tournament, was the first runner-up, which is like you know, if anything, if, if for any reason Miss America is not able to fulfill her duties, Miss Connecticut would have to step in. And according to the Washington Post, she blew people away with her talent performance. Talent is a bigger part of Miss America now that they've gotten rid of the swimsuits. And she did an Irish step dance and moonwalked. So I've seen pictures of her in her Irish step dancing shoes that look hard to dance in. Apparently somehow or other she was able to get into a moonwalk. It wasn't enough to get her the win, but uh, she's getting a lot of praise for it. And so we got to have her in here. we got to get to know. I mean, I want to know somebody who does Irish step dancing and moonwalks. All right, so we got time to go to the phones here. I'm going to just run right down the board unless somebody tells me. Uh, oh, so Tony and Barbara are going to try it. Okay, so uh, Tony from New Britain, you're on the air. Uh, hi there, yeah. So I think I've uh, symbiotically merged uh, the two topics. Yes. Um, okay. I think it's interesting to me that um, with both the tennis issue and both the debate issue, that it seems like the rules are maybe a moving target. And um Maybe it's more about the people who make the rules than it is about the uh, participants themselves. That's pretty good. I think that qualifies you for some kind of prize. I'm going to put you on hold. Hopefully, Betsy Kaplan is going to come on the air and uh, take your details so that we can send you the very, very coveted some kind of prize. He is he he's eligible, but you know it's not just one person. It's not like the U.S. Open where only one person wins. Or actually, at the U.S. Open, they have a men's champion and a women's champion. So here's Barbara from Rocky Hill. Hi, Barbara. You're on the air. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. So I think it's all about fairness, and it's really hard to decide what's fair because everybody has their own view of what's fair. Like my grandson is always upset if the sister gets the bigger piece of cake. Mm -hmm. 
That's that's well done, too. I think that that was a, a, an effective synthesis. You also will be receiving the very popular and much desired some kind of prize. <laughs> well, I mean, Wolfie, we have like this room that's full of there's just stuff out there, right? I mean, we I think we can just pick through it. That doesn't sound very attractive. <laughs> and we'll sign it, yes. Whatever thing... <laughs> <laughs> Whatever dubious thing it is that we sent to you will be signed by many people from the WNPR newsroom, assuming that our newsroom stays intact for the rest of the day, which is kind of a toss up right now. Uh, so let's go to Jerry in Rocky Point, New York. Hi, Jerry. You're on the air. Hi. Um, going back to the match Saturday night. Yeah. One of the terms that was thrown around was verbal abuse. That's what she was accused of. And they gloss it over. But I kind of think she was verbally abusive. I am not oblivious to all the other sides of the argument. But if she had just left it at, you're a thief, you stole a point from me, and didn't stand there jabbing her finger and um, continuing to rant, maybe it wasn't abusive. But I would have felt threatened by what she did. Well, let's let, let's look at it this way. I, I first of all, I think you've got a great point here, and uh, we have to look at things kind of contextually. So, um, one of the things that we know is that athletes um, tend to get mad uh, at officials, and as Josh was pointing out earlier, this is ninety nine percent of the time when they're losing or they feel something is slipping away. At that moment, they're especially mad at the officials. They they they're competitive people. If you're operating at that level, you're probably the kind of person who's not good at blaming yourself. You think there's some other reason why this is happening to me. I'm Roger Clements. I'm Serena Williams. I'm John. I'm whoever I am. This is somebody else's fault because I haven't lived my life in such a way that this could be happening to me. So, yeah, I mean, that tends to happen. And, you know, each sport tries to regulate it a little bit differently. Like in baseball, there's this incredibly unspoken code about what you can do and what you can't do and whether you can be looking at the person. If you're not looking at the ump while you're talking to them, that that's different. You know, and and I'm sure that's true to a certain degree in football and basketball, too. And then there are just lines you're not allowed to cross. No, I'm not a big expert on tennis and how they categorize categorize all that stuff. You know, I mean, once again, it gets back to what I was saying before, though, Barbara. Sorry, Jerry, which is that, um, you know, like if you scream a hole at me. That would probably bother me less than ways that you could very specifically verbally <laughs> abuse me that I thought were very specific to me. So maybe to this guy, liar, thief. She also said, you will never again work on a court where I'm playing, um, which is, you know, I, I guess you could sort of call that a d- employment threat or something like that. I mean, a lot of it. Uh, I, yeah, I would. Yeah. And can, can I make one more, you know, side point? Absolutely. She was one. Serena was wonderful when she brought the crowd back. Mm-hmm. However, she kept saying, "This is Naomi's moment." But if anybody took the moment away from Naomi, it was Serena herself. Yeah, a little bit of both. I mean, there's there's a rule in in sports. Uh, once again, kind of an uncodified rule. If you're an official, you don't want to become the story, and if possible. You don't want to make a call that becomes a story or becomes really the tipping point in an outcome. Now, it could be argued that Serena Williams is going to lose this match anyway, and deducting a game ultimately didn't make that big a difference. But usually as an official, you want to kind of 
stay out of the way. I think the people who have said if he'd started with what they call a soft warning on the coaching thing, the coaching from the stands thing, if he'd started there, soft warning, I'm not going to call it right now. If I see any more of it, I'm going to call it. You know, probably none of us would be having this conversation. So there's a little bit of blame to go around, right? Yeah. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a lot, a lot of agreement here today, which is would be bad if we were on commercial radio. I think it's fine uh, here on public radio. Uh, all right. Here's uh, Carrie in Collinsville. Hi, Carrie. You're on the air. Hey, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, I know who you are. You I, and I even have watched you play tennis. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, that's part of why I'm calling. I used to be a tennis player and even taught tennis. And one of the things that's extremely important in tennis and in golf, but not in most sports, <clears throat> is etiquette and how you behave to the point where Bjorn Borg, back when he started beating John McEnroe and he was uh, quiet when the calls didn't go his way and they didn't have the replay back then. Um, and John McEnroe, if things weren't going his way, he'd make a big, huge fuss, throw his racket, you know, the whole story. And what the problem in tennis and in golf is that people need to keep their focus. And so when you have an opponent yelling and ranting and raving, it can throw your game off. I think that's part of the reason that it's treated um, so harshly when people get out of control. Right, like that. and Kerry, we're going to have to stop it there. It's even been suggested in McEnroe's case he did that deliberately to disrupt focus. Good luck doing that with Bjorn Borg. But you, I know what you mean, and we know what you mean, and we're going to have to stop there. But thanks to everybody, especially to Gene Amatruda, the hero of the day.